Mark Lynch, Director of the Project on Middle East Political Science. Welcome to the 30th and final episode of the 12th season of the Middle East Political Science Podcast. For this episode, we have two really interesting roundtable conversations about uh, issues that are topics of growing and, and, and quite intense debate, but in very different venues. First, we have a discussion with four members of the Pullmap Steering Committee uh, about questions of research ethics and positionality and the obligations that we as scholars have when we begin working with or working on issues related to uh, scholars in the field and, and activists in the field. Um, and so we'll hear from uh, four people who've written extensively and thought uh, at, at great length about these issues. Uh, Baba Ahmedi, uh, Janine Clark, Larissa Shomiak, and Rima Majid. Then we turn to a, a different set of issues, issues related to the nature and the reality of Israel's control over Palestinians. And uh, we talked to Dalia Scheinlin and Yale Berda about a recent article in Foreign Affairs about uh, what they see as the possible annexation of the West Bank through extension of civilian legal regimes and a much deeper look at the nature of the rule of law uh, in Israel, Jerusalem, the occupied West Bank. Um, and uh, thank you so much for listening to us all season long. And uh, let's listen to some of these fascinating conversations. This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch. And at this year's annual conference, the Project on Middle East Political Science, uh, we had an opportunity to speak to several members of our leadership um, about issues related to their research, about issues ongoing in the Middle East. And today we're going to talk to four scholars about some of the uh, ethical challenges that we face as people who are doing research in the Middle East, um, whether in the field or in partnerships, and just some of the issues that have been confronting us as scholars and as a community as we try and get a, get a, get a handle on how we can be the best scholars that we can be. Um, in this uh, in this session, we're going to be joined by uh, Larissa Shomiak of uh, of CMAT in Tunisia, uh, Rababa Mahdi at the American University of Cairo, uh, Janine Clark at the University of Toronto, and uh, Rima Majid of the American University of Beirut. And I think we'll start with um, with Larissa. And um, if you could offer uh, your thoughts on uh, some of the things that we should be thinking about as political scientists working with partners and with people in the field. Thanks so much, Mark. Um, we've had a wonderful um, meeting here in DC, um, and I'm excited that I can talk with my friends and colleagues about an issue we've been addressing over the last couple of years in multiple different spaces. One of them most recently um, as part of the Romania, the Research Ethics mm -hmm. in the Middle East and North Africa project, um, where we had meetings in Cairo and um, in Tunis. So one of the things that we want to talk about is not only what does it mean to do research, but how research has shifted um, in the last, let's say, uh, last couple of decades that might go hand in hand with methodological shifts in um, political science work in the region, um, but also what some of the expectations of researchers are once they get to the region, um, either from us as people who work there, as individuals who work there, um, or um, from the interlocutors and the, um, um, and, and, and the, um, research subjects right. who they interact with. So we're going to talk about some of these issues today. Um, great. Um, so why don't we go to uh, Janine, uh, Janine Clark. Uh, uh, and, you know, you wrote you, along with Francesco Cavatorta, you edited this amazing book on ethical challenges in field research. And we've had a couple of years to reflect on that since then. So why don't you kick us off with uh, some of these issues? Yeah, I think one of the things I want to raise, and it came out most certainly in the book and also in my own research, I think a lot of discussions we've had, is an issue of, the larger issue of the extractive natures of, of fieldwork, of research in general, that we as research go, researchers in North America or Europe, for example, go to the field and are, are extracting knowledge from others. And, and that's the essential basis of our research. But I think there is certainly increasing awareness of uh, the need to sort of, let's say, rebalance that extractive nature, to ameliorate that extractive nature and how to make it less extractive. I'm not sure we can make it unextractive in all senses, but we can certainly um, lessen it and sort of make it more fair. And yeah, tell us a little what you mean by extractive, like define that for us. Well, I think actually maybe everybody could talk about an example of particularly the other three people here are are those who are usually being extracted from. But I would say a simple example is 
um, extracting information from someone, expecting their time, their knowledge, not acknowledging it, um, that they suddenly have both the time to sit down for you, the willingness to give you maybe knowledge that's taken them a lot of years to gain, and to a large extent also do it with the privilege or the assumption that this is the way it should be, uh, without reflecting upon um, the dynamics that are at, at play. Yeah, I, I can add to that. I mean, I think the main question we're asking here is when we go to field work or when we approach our research, whose interests are we centering? Is it, am I only thinking about my career and how I'm going to have uh, great publications and this is all I'm thinking about? Or am I also thinking about what does my research mean for the people I'm researching, for the societies I'm working with? For uh, And I think it differs depending on who we are and what our positionality is. Uh, but we do see um, a trend of uh, recently, I mean, a, a good trend of people becoming more and more aware of these power dynamics. Um, but I think we would not be exaggerating when we say that there still is an extractive nature in the sense that most researchers are still focused on what they are getting out of this. And of course, I mean, we're not doing research not to get anything out of it, but we also need to be very aware of how we're doing it and what it means. And I mean, this is the example about, I mean, what it means for people who are, uh, who we are, uh, our interlocutors, people who we're talking to, people who we're researching, people who we're doing surveys with, uh, et cetera. Also, you need to think about what do these methods mean in the region, right? I mean, um, I mean, there's, you know, approach to research is very um, situational and, and contextual. And, you know, what does it mean to go to a research, uh, to a, a, a refugee camp and do a survey experiment, right? What does it mean for these people? I'm I'm saying, okay, I'll put you now in a, in a you know, uh, uh, in an experiment setting and I'll ask you a few questions and see what, what it means to you. Um, so we need to reflect on those, uh, uh, on the ethics of doing that and how it differs from one society to the other. But we also, so there's the, the, so of course, I mean, the biggest concern is with interlocutors and how we're extracting there. But there's also how we're approaching um, colleagues and knowledge producers in the region who are based in the region, who are already operating in, in circumstances that are uh, more difficult. Um, uh, and it could be more difficult in terms of institutional resources, et cetera, but it's not just that. I mean, we some of us are probably at universities that have some resources, but it's the whole structure is more difficult, right? I mean, uh, uh, living in countries with no electricity, having to spend a lot of uh, hours during the day trying to get water, right? It's like time is spent on things that make and so the, the structure of this ecosystem of knowledge production is is more time consuming and difficult so when we send students from uh, the us or or europe uh, or northern america in general to the field um, i think there's we need to think about what is the responsibility of universities abroad uh, in terms of training them uh, for for uh, field work right but also in how do we approach local uh, uh, co colleagues, not as local informants or fixers, but as knowledge producers, right? And, um, you know, and I think it, a good exercise is like to reverse roles. Like, would you accept a student coming from abroad, taking your time, asking you, how do I get around DC? And like, can you tell me what the Pentagon is? Uh, and like, can you, can you explain to me how, like, would you spend time doing that? This is actually a lot of what we get uh, uh, being based in the region. We also get a lot of emails requests. And, and one new trend I'm starting to, uh, to see is people who come uh, framing their approaches. I'm very aware that I'm uh, you know, an, an outsider, I'm a white person studying refugees in Lebanon. I'm very aware of that. So can you help me uh, position myself or get like, I'm talking to you because I, because I'm aware of this. And it's just reproducing these uh, uh, dynamics of, uh, you know, it's like, it's like reproductive labor and knowledge production in academia falls back on, you know, this bigger structure of inequality and in, in knowledge production. And I think, I don't have uh, uh, data on that, but just anecdotally, I, I think it's mainly on junior female colleagues in the region uh, because more established male colleagues don't get similar requests. I ask my colleagues and it's they're not the ones who are getting that. Um, it's easier to send it to a woman that is more junior and that can do the, you know, the reproductive care labor of, 
uh, uh, introducing someone to the field. This is work. This is the responsibility of universities abroad, and they need to be doing more in in that sense. Rabab, how about how about your experiences? So I think the the extractive nature of research actually starts way uh, before you actually hit the field, um, and I think it has like one needs to think about the power relations. And usually when we think about it, we think about it in terms of that binary, you know, the, of course there is sort of like a white man burden. There's a North global South uh, kind of dynamic, but I think it's also, it's much more complex than that because there is an extractive nature that can happen from within, you know, um, scholars in the region can have this kind of extractive relationship with their quote-unquote research subjects, with their interlocutors and, and fixers. And privilege does not just, is not just, you know, those who are based in the North. Again, if you're in Ivy League, it's very different than if you are in a small liberal arts uh, college, if you are in the region, but as I am, for example, uh, based in an American institution, I'm much more privileged than my colleagues in at national uh, universities. Um, my, my chances, my interlocutors, my context is um, very much um, privileged, for lack of, uh, of, of better word. Um, so we need, I think, to be aware of those uh, nuances and not to just think about things in terms of, you know, a global north, global south, even though that is actually definitely like the a main axis, right? And when we're doing that, I think uh, we need to ask ourselves questions um, about what Rima said, definitely, what are we, what are the questions we ask? Not just, you know, before we even hit the field, why am I uh, working on those kinds of, uh, of questions? Uh, publishers, I also don't think that this is like an individual responsibility. I think it's a, a collective responsibility of publishers, of uh, journals in our discipline and how we train our graduate uh, pro, uh, uh, our graduate students. Mm -hmm. How do we decide on what is uh, a research question worth our while, right? Is it because I've, I've seen things that are reproducing, we're not contributing, let I'm not going to even say critical knowledge production or speaking truth to power, which I think we should be doing, but even something that is just like, you know, out of curiosity, it's, it's more, um, it's more interesting. And here, when you keep uh, going to the same camp, when you keep going to the same group of activists, it's not just, you know, re-traumatizing and extractive, but it's also stale knowledge production, right? And I don't know to who, who who's who's our audience and and how uh, how do we do that and the decision making also about so one of the things that I I think I, I I should stop there is being a good weather friend like I've seen being based in in Cairo I've seen how colleagues um, came to the region after the Arab uprising and this is colleagues some of them who's never been to the region before. And some of and others who have been working, and then once the tide turns, like no one is is interested in this scholarly community in those research subjects that they uh, worked with, and this is like this kind of being indispensable, uh, dispensable actually, mm -hmm. right? Of not thinking about the power dynamics that you can actually use someone, and just you know the tide turns, and then. Ah, you leave. I've seen people decide to even ask questions that they know once this material is published, they will be able to use their, I don't know what color your passport is, but you know, like red or blue or whatever, but their interlocutors, those activists that they uh, uh, left behind went to prison. And those are people who did have like an IRB. So mm -hmm. I'll, I'll stop there, but 
Well, so Larissa, you were directing a uh, the one of the major like uh, uh, American research centers in Tunisia at the time that you had the revolution and all these things happening, and something similar to what Rabab was saying. Lots of political scientists came through Tunis wanting to study this. And tell us a little bit about your experiences um, with trying to manage and navigate this sudden interest in in your country as a research area. Um. I wish I could say Tunis was my country. It's not. <laughs> it still is. Your country of <laughs> Um But um, um, yeah, I, th- this is this is a really important question that um, um, uh, my my colleague, friend, and co-author Jillian Schmidler and I address in a upcoming um, chapter where we discuss um, how some of the research. Um, 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 was conducted, and in that piece specifically, we talk about fixing um, and outsourcing knowledge production, which is something that I experienced for the first time um, when I started directing Simon uh, after the revolution. So I wasn't there during the revolution. Oh, okay. I missed okay. it. I was here in DC, um, but about um, eight months thereafter. And what's really interesting about this is that I'm of a, and this is not to glorify this kind of generation, but I'm. Uh, I'm, I employ a qualitative uh, method in my own work, um, and I'm from or of a uh, scholarly generation where we learn everything about the field before we go into the field. So you read everything that's possible that's out there, um, secondary sources, primary sources, you talk to people and you prep yourself before you go um, into the field in order to um, make the most of uh, that time, the funding that we get, because funding is so hard to come by, so that you make the most out of those three months or two months or nine months or 12 months. And what I encountered in my position, um, which has been quite fascinating, is that that's not how a lot of people go about their work. So people do it in very different ways. And um, again, this is not necessarily a critique of that kind of work, uh, which is what um, Jillian and I address in the chapter, but it's to think about what this means for how we write about um, the places, the phenomena, um, or um, um, the topics that we seek to unpack and mm-hmm. analyze and um, um, and um, think about. And so um, one of the things I wasn't aware of um, is that fixing became so predominant mm-hmm. in academic research. Um, that is to say, um, the, the line between finding assistance for research, for whatever reason, um, is not the same as fixing per se. And so what we do in this chapter is we take fixing the way in which journalists treat fixing, which is someone helps narrating a story. Someone helps through these chains of brokerage to help us understand what is going on. And what the, the question that we ask is, whose story are we telling? Whose analysis do we include in our own thought process? And what does that mean for the way in which we address our own um, um, scholarly research questions. This reminds me of an outstanding recent book by uh, Noah Arjaman, yeah. uh, Fixing Stories, uh, which really goes deep into this in the Turkey in the context of Turkey. Um, and, and it's not just about unethical practice, it actually has really serious implications for the outcome of the research and the quality of the research. That's right. Um, And um, one scholar who's been addressing this quite a lot in a different situation, because most of the um, experiences that Jillian and I describe are from my work in North Africa and hers in in Jordan. But Sarah Parkinson, who works in in conflict uh, situations, um, really talks about in, um, in her reflections of what this means, what happens when you work through a fixer who, for instance, has the same Rolodex and the, the and introduces the scholar to the same set of people? Mm-hmm. What happens when, what happens to the person who interviews is also in a way being socialized into that relationship with, with the researcher and then kind of maybe adjusts or even refines the way in which they speak mm-hmm. to the researcher because there might be a hope that something will come out of it. Maybe not, but there might be a hope that something comes out of it, especially among vulnerable communities. Mm-hmm. Um, so so again, um, what we're trying to do in this work and this reflection, whether it's through the ethics commission, uh, whether it's the discussions mm-hmm. that we're having here at POMEPS or um, um, in our written reflections is to not say that this is not a way to do research, but just to reflect about what happens when we opt for this kind of uh, method. 
I want to go back to, to Rima. So you recently published or an edited volume with Jeffrey Karam about the Lebanese uh, the revolution. Um, and this seems like the opposite of that model where you centered local activists telling their own stories. Um, and it's a really interesting model of what research could be. But on the other on the, on the other side, it could be simply seen as like providing raw material, which can then be extracted by researchers without having been in Lebanon or doing their own research. You know, what do you think about that style or, of like producing knowledge and sharing knowledge and your reflections on that? Uh, it was really an exceptional volume. I mean, the, the idea of this volume was exactly to think of uh, the protagonists of revolution as knowledge producers themselves. Uh, and uh, I mean, whether uh, academics will extract this and use it as uh, raw material, I mean, that's fine as long as they cite these. Things, right? <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, but, but the idea is that we wanted to show and practice what it means to actually take seriously the idea that People who participate in revolutions are knowledge producers of, you know, they are able to reflect on what they've done and write about it. I mean, and we, we the uh, some people wrote in Arabic, some people, uh, uh, we had to like do many rounds of editing to get it in the shape of a chapter because this is not, uh, you know, they prefer to talk or they prefer to use other uh, 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 media to, to, you know, get their ideas across. And that was completely fine for us. The, the core was to really do do it in a different way because both Jeffrey and I and many people who contributed to this volume were a bit tired of this literature that is, uh, you know, dominated by frameworks of what academics are discussing and in many cases overlooking. And when we opened the, you know, when we really opened it for people to think about what they want to say, mm -hmm. we got very, very different perspectives, right? People talking about disability and movement, people talking about, uh, you know, a, a, a gender in very, very new ways, people talking about very different things, art, uh, graffiti, media, etc. Um, and it was a very good learning experience for us as well. Um, I think the, the idea is how do we undo some of the trainings uh, we, we have and rethink in critical ways, because these are these are historical moments. And we don't want to just be producing what the trend in the literature is. We want to be really thinking and producing not just academic, but also intellectual, uh, 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 you know, uh, knowledge and to really wrap our heads around the big questions and also to think about what are people interested in? How do they see it? How how are we? And I'm, I say they, I mean, I'm part of the they. And this was actually one of the this was when I really started uh, thinking about this issue of, of uh, ethics and positionality and et cetera, because I found myself, I mean, I've, I've been a scholar of social movements and identity politics in the region for a long time. And then a revolution happens and I find myself in the middle of it, mm -hmm. not knowing who I like, not knowing what I am. Am I a researcher? Am I a, uh, an organizer? Am I a protagonist? Am I someone who wants to just do, uh, you know, uh, Molotov cocktails? I mean, who, what am I doing? Right. Mm -hmm. And, and then what I started to see is that a lot of colleagues that I love and and uh, really not criticizing, uh, but but also made me think about. I mean, colleagues started to call me and ask me what is happening, and like I gave very long interviews to media, etc. And there were cases where people I don't know very well contacted me wanting an interview, and I did, like I sat with them for two three hours, and then I found my ideas published in academic mm -hmm. journals mm -hmm. without even citing me. Mm -hmm. uh, and when I wrote to the editors, I mean they added a footnote, uh, but that was like a three hour long interview, and like ten ideas in this article are things that I've said, right? <laughs> uh, so uh, so that's the extractive nature of things, and and there is a different way to do it, and like taking seriously and it goes back to this idea of who are we centering and why and if we're doing this just because we want a career in academia fair enough then we we need to acknowledge that and maybe try to find ways of studying things that you know where where this equation would work uh, but when when we're working in in with a power dynamic that is so huge in other regions of the world where you know there's lives of people is at stake when what we say is very important then this is this really becomes unethical. And the way to do it is to take seriously the fact that people on the ground are knowledge producers themselves. 
It reminds me in some ways of a Wendy Perlman's great book on uh, uh, oral histories of, of Syrian refugees and, and centering them rather than filtering it through uh, theoretical frameworks or or questions derived from literature. It, it, it's really interesting. Um, Rabab, why don't you jump in here? Yeah, I mean, the, so many things are going on in, in my mind. So one, in terms of even what Rima was talking about, so in terms of even knowledge production. And when I think of contentious politics, that question that we're always, that, that binary of, you know, the activist, scholar, organizer, um, I think this is so passé and it's been passé since the 60s. When you think even in terms of um, knowledge product, like no new social movements, uh, for example, that approach, which is so big within social movement theory, that came out of organizers and activists in the uh, 68 uh, student movement, you know, no one asked, um, you know, Tilly, you know, were you involved, like, some of the excellent uh, work that is done on the, uh, you know, labor movement, or the civil rights movement came from people who were involved right so and there's something called praxis in case we have not <laughs> heard about this so i think also that has to do with a power dynamic when scholars of the global south are asked that repeatedly or that burden of proof as if you know there's that schism between being an organizer or an engaged citizen even though like we we talk about our students being engaged citizens and that this is one something that we want but once that's taken um in the context of the global south of the region that becomes something as if they're lesser of scholars oh mm -hmm. but that's you know activism there's something called action research also by the way in addition to practice and i think this stems or is reflective of a very deep seated disrespectful orientalist understanding of those who are in the region. So a way of continuing to dismiss them is basically to label them as, oh, but you know, this is activist or this is journalism, but it's not real uh, work. Whereas using, continuing to use stale, overused frameworks and trying to straight jacket events that are completely different. Not completely different because they're, you know, the cultural specificity, but because they're happening at the time of history where Black Lives Matter is not like the uh, uh, civil rights movement. We need to think about it differently. Accordingly, the, the uh, uprisings in the Middle East and the kind of contentious politics is could not be straight jacketed into you know, resource mobilization frameworks or even new social movements frameworks. Now, I want to be, uh, and that this should be like uh, my final point, but I want to be constructive here. When we go to indigenous um, indigenous studies, right, there are practices about what is ethical and what's unethical, right? We're not recreating, uh, decolonizing, uh, you know, research. Those are not, maybe they're new uh, or not tapped into in political science or political science of the region. But that's, again, because we are a bit like, you know, progressive. But there are other disciplines who thought about these issues. And there are practices that are being thought all the time. But also within, um, within our discipline, there are people who thought critically or reflexive uh, about, you know, what's going on and the power dynamic and not from a patronizing or condescending kind of thing, where it's just like, okay, uh, you know, you help me fix everything. You're going to, you know, um, uh, babysit my students and myself and prep everything for me. And when it's time for you to give you a sabbatical, I'm going to find you a place in the U.S. You can spend some time. That does not, that is disrespectful. And it does not actually address, uh, you know, any of those structural issues. Whereas we have great examples, you know, the late Alice Goldberg, uh, Lisa Anderson, uh, Nathan Brown, Ellen Lust, Janine. Those are people who actually walked the talk, right? They think of co-authoring and they don't think of co-authoring as in terms of, you know, hand-holding because there, there are they, you know, their co-authors are lesser people. They think of co-authoring because they know that those colleagues have, you know, something to add to their uh, to their work. They think of partnerships, not in terms of uh, when when I work with Lisa Anderson on something like Remina, 
it's not that she's, uh, you know, oh, we, you want to do this, let's do that, which is very patronizing. Like we disagree as equals, we think uh, strategically of how to work and also the choices of research that they, the research questions that they work on and the methodologies and taking the time to spend with their quote unquote research uh, subjects and learning from them, not just like, you know, um, making them or straight jacketing into frameworks that they already have. That's a great transition. Uh, we're going to go, our last uh, uh, interlocutor will be Janine Clark. What, what, so what do you do about this? How do you, or how do we as a field make research less extractive? Okay. I don't have a lot to build. So much has been said. I'm going to build a little on what everybody has said. Certainly, I agree with, uh, with uh, Rabab that part of the problem are the very questions we ask and larger structural problems. Larger structural problems, I think, that um, um, prevent young scholars from thinking of alternative ways or what they need to do to get ahead in their careers, um, such as co-writing, for example. But I think certainly, if we're going to um, looking at what's done with Indigenous studies, for example, one thing that could easily be done far more commonly is create community partnerships, not necessarily with another research institute, but with communities. Mm -hmm. Maybe a community partnership with an NGO in which, uh, or whatever, and that's done very little in our in our field, but it's done a lot elsewhere, in which together um, not only is a joint research plan determined, but in fact, usually as the researcher, you have an, you know, have an obligation to give back. It could be, for example, doing an evaluation. That particular NGO actually would like an evaluation done of what's of you know their practices, for example. And that is your contribution to their organization for the privilege of being allowed to speak to people at the organization and, and learn about them, for example. You know, another thing is not just co-writing with other colleagues. Why not co-write with research assistants? Um, they have lots to offer. They've helped you. They've worked with you. They they know about the field in ways you will never know about the field as an outsider. Um, co-writing with activists. Um, again, activists are knowledge producers. So I think there's a, a, a lot that can that can be done. I think one of the issues is, um, and I'll just add to it, um, there's also, back to community uh, partners, for example, a lot of times um, various groups would like training and you have the training you can mm -hmm. give in terms of whatever that training may be in how to do a survey. I don't know what it is, but there is things that we can offer and take the time to that um, people in the region um, uh, would like. Um, certainly one of the things that's coming up more and more in research applications is the demand for legacy. And I think that's also a really important component. Again, it's such a small piece to a larger structural problem, but legacy is really meaning if you're doing research now, what are you leaving behind that this community or group can use in years um, to come? So that your, and that could be some sort of training that could then go on in years to come. I mean, a really simplistic form is if you're holding, a, this is very simplistic, if you're holding a meeting, um, you're going to purchase the, the tables and chairs that then that community can use yours. The idea is you're leaving a legacy. It doesn't stop with you. You walk away, you got what you wanted, but that, that particular group, organization, community, or whomever you're working with has something um, moving forward. Um, I think, uh, I've just lost my train of thought. So you, you know, one thing which is a really interesting example of this is the work that Stacey Philbrick Yadav has been doing in Yemen, um, and very much along the lines of what you're describing, where uh, centering these young Yemeni researchers, training them, making them lead authors, uh, and like building these institutions um, in extraordinarily difficult circumstances. It's quite inspirational and very much follows the the what you're laying out. Yeah, yeah. I wish there were more examples like that. Well, part of it is that, I, as I said before, these structural problems that a lot of young scholars feel, I won't get credit. I'm, I want to get tenure. I want to get that. I'm not going to get credit if I co-write with with a, with an activist. And, you know, to a large to a large extent, the training has to be back in the home universities, that this is not taking away from what a scholar is doing. This is actually improving it and being producing better scholarship. But also the longevity of relations. Mm -hmm. I think that matters. Like there's there's this kind of thing that we hop on and off 
So, you know, uh, today it's uh, Tunisia because that's in. Tomorrow it's going to be, I don't know. And all those examples that we, that we mentioned, you know, whether Stacey, you know, in, in, in the, the people I mentioned, you know, those are people who have continued long-term relations with the place. And hence they become part of that community, right? When any of those names I mentioned, Ellis, uh, uh, Nathan, um, Lisa, when they go to Egypt, this is, it's a community, right? They know who's who, they 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 kept that. And there's an, that human element mm -hmm. uh, to things. So that it's not just the, the, it's the antithesis of that kind of being, uh, dispensable right so um and also helps your research because the more in-depth knowledge you have of a place the better it is even when things are closed off because a lot let's be uh, uh, honest the the conditions in the region sometimes are not conducive to uh being there in person or doing field work and this does not mean that people need to limit themselves to that one country expertise, you know, especially for comparativists, but, be, but be, it also does not mean that you keep hopping here and there with what's uh, in. I think that, uh, you know, someone mentioned uh, Sarah Parkinson and, and her work on these things. And I think her one of the reasons her article is so important is that her point is not simply that you're being unethical because mm -hmm. a lot of people don't care, but it's that you're going to do bad research if you don't follow these practices. Mm -hmm. And I think this is part of a much larger conversation that Ramina is helping to uh, develop and that I think has become increasingly widespread across the discipline. Mm -hmm. I want to thank uh, uh, Rima Maja, Janine Clark, Rababa Mehdi, and Larissa Chomiak for joining us. Um, and I'm looking forward to continuing this conversation. This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch, and we're now joined by Dahlia Scheinman, policy fellow at Century International, columnist at Haaretz, and the author of the forthcoming book, The Crooked Timber of Democracy in Israel, and Yael Berda of Hebrew University in Jerusalem, and also a fellow with the Middle East Initiative at Harvard Kennedy School, author of the new book, Colonial Bureaucracy and Contemporary Citizenship, and they're here to talk about an article they just published in Foreign Affairs called, provocatively, Israel's annexation of the West Bank has already begun. Yael Dalia, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having us. So let's talk about this article. And uh, obviously, this is part of an ongoing debate uh, that uh, that I was part of recently about you know, the prospects of a two-state solution, um, the nature of what uh, we call the one-state reality. And this is a really interesting intervention in this argument. Uh, so why don't we just like talk it through a little bit? And uh, Dahlia, do you want to do you want to kick us off? Yeah, thank you for the question. And what's interesting is that Israel, in a way, has had this debate about whether or not it should declare annexation formally in some ceremonial way over parts of the West Bank for the last few years. I would say in earlier decades, that conversation was completely kind of blacklisted. It wasn't something Israelis would openly talk about. And there weren't, frankly, maybe enough Israelis who really thought about it like that. But since I would say about 2015, the issue has been more and more on the agenda. And it came to a head in 2020 when Prime Minister Netanyahu decided there was an actual date after which Israel would begin formally, openly annexing parts of the West Bank. But as we all know, partly because of the Abraham Accords, the Prime Minister decided not to move ahead with any sort of de jure annexation. He he didn't announce it. He rolled back this idea that there was going to be a, a big, you know, official process. But what actually happened instead of Israel not annexing was that Israel continued to be to do what it has been doing for many years, arguably. And this is one of the arguments that we imply uh, in the article that Israel has been expanding various forms of control, whether it's military control or actually different forms of civilian control over the West Bank and in the past over Gaza, too, and in the present over Gaza in a different way since 1967 but in ways that were sort of uh, that enjoyed a kind of plausible deniability. But the most visible way, of course, was settlements. And we all know about settlements spreading over the years, the population expanding, you know, expanding into different geographical, strategic geographical parts of the West Bank. What we don't really see, because the settlements themselves are so visible and so colorful and so headline worthy, what we don't see is why it is so easy 
for settlers to live there. And that has to do with how Israel has expanded its bureaucracy, its laws, its technical infrastructure that makes life feel pretty seamless for settlers there while Palestinians are living under a military regime. That's already hard to convey, but it does contribute to Israel kind of uh, legitimately or not legitimately, but, uh, but convincingly conveying to the world that there is really only a military regime there. Nobody can see the what is effectively a kind of civilian comfortable life for Israel's citizens there. And therefore, most of the rest of the world, and including many Israelis, essentially think this is a military occupation that Israel can reverse if the conditions should ever come into place for a two-state solution, except that, as we all know, the conditions for a two-state solution are, you know, basically non-existent. Um, it's practically off the table and it's very remote. And in this situation, when we have that very inauspicious, you know, uh, political environment, that could ever imagine a two-state solution, and at the same time, a very, very extreme right-wing government that wants to formalize as much as possible Israel's civilian control. I mean, this is a government that wants Jewish-Israeli sovereignty over all of the West Bank and effective control over Gaza, too. And they began a process that continued what we see as this less visible bureaucratic and technocratic change to essentially move the powers of occupation away from the army and into civilian control, the kind of thing that is so hard to explain that most people don't understand it, including most Israelis. And we thought this was worth uh, conveying because it is another really undeniable indicator of how Israel is making its control ever more permanent and ever deeper, but in a way that formally privileges the Jewish Israeli citizens who live there over Palestinians, apparently in perpetuity. Now, Yale, can you tell us a little bit about why this shift from the military to the civilian rule uh, rule of law? Why is it so important and how does it fit into the broader array of Israeli forms of control and governance within the occupied territories? Well, it has to do with international law. So basically, what is occupation? Occupation is this category in which within the laws of war, um, when there is conquest, um, there is no actually actual way to acquire land by force. There's no such possibility in international law, but there is that the category of temporary occupation in which um, the the people that are that are uh, the population that is conquered um, become protected persons, and then um, the military is in charge of the, that population and of the territory until a resolution happens. Now, the thing is, and why is it, why is the military rule such an important part of this? Because um, as soon as it is not a military rule, but a civilian rule that no longer is occupation, it is acquiring territory by force, which is then illegal. And then also in, by international law requires a response by the international community. And so this is where this shift becomes so important. It becomes aggression. And um, shifting to the, 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 the military, to the, to the civil authority, um, something that happened now, uh, de jure through the the coalition agreements. So it's written, you know, um, black on white that um, Bezalel Samotrich, uh, the head of uh, uh, the religious Zionist party, will become uh, defense the second defense minister in the Ministry of Defense, in charge of civilian affairs in the territories. What does that mean? In charge of the civil administration, the civil administration is part of the of the of the um, military structure. But as soon as the authority is transferred from the military commander, who's the actual temporary sovereign, if you want to call him that, um, he has the the authority, and that authority is transferred from the military commander to a civilian minister, that process of moving away 
from occupation towards annexation and acquiring uh, uh, territory through aggression is in place by bureaucratic means. So it's on one hand, it's it's complicated, but on the other hand, it's really simple. It just says as soon as you take um, uh, the authority out of the hands of the military into civilian hands, you are moving from one type of legal category to another type of legal category. And so, which would it have us expect that it would elicit an immediate reaction? Why is that not happening? A, because of bureaucratic complexity, and B, because this has been happening for such a long time. So it's it it doesn't create a major change in reality. Um, and what it demands is kind of looking deeply at the organizational structures. And that's something that, you know, one has to choose to do. Oh, that, that's an interesting point. That's, that's a really interesting point that you're raising. Because I think for many people, there's a tendency to locate the source of all of this in this current quite extreme Israeli government. Whereas you're arguing this is much deeper and longer roots and, and it can't just be seen as something that uh, one political coalition is doing, which could then quickly go away if the political coalition changes. Yeah, I mean, this is exactly the paradoxical part of the article. And we had to really think about how to convey our argument, which is that, in fact, if you go back to 1967, theoretically, the army is managing, implementing the powers of occupation. And again, the use of the term sovereign is even a little strange here because there is no actual sovereign, but they have the ultimate authority for law and administration that is all in the hands of the military. But who, who is the military subordinate to? The military is subordinate to the state. And that's a basic, I think, very obvious point. But the state is not just nothing. The state is a prime minister, other ministers, all the various ministries. And the state is setting essentially economic policy, paving roads, healthcare systems. I mean, and in the early years, certainly through the army, all civilian life was being managed until the creation of the civil administration, which in itself is a confusing thing because it's called the civil administration that was to manage Palestinian civilian life and theoretically Jewish life. But it was theoretically under the command of the military, but it's the leaders of the civil administration, the top figures also were civilian figures. And overlapped with other, you know, had to coordinate with other ministries. And so essentially you had the executive branch deep and in, deeply involved in running the occupation from the very beginning. Then within, I don't know, months, I guess I would say, the Supreme Court began hearing cases related to claims of Palestinians uh, appealing uh, various policies that eventually would reach the Supreme Court. And so the Supreme Court has been ruling on issues related to the occupation since 1967, practically. And so that's the judicial branch, you know, and then, of course, by July of 1967, we have Israel's legislature, the, legis the, the legislative branch passing legislation that enables the kinds of laws that eventually allow Jews to live there under Israeli large sections of Israeli of Israeli civilian law. And so ultimately, you have all of the branches of government of the Israeli state involved while telling itself that it's the military that's governing and that actually has the authority. So that those basic parameters have been in place for a long time. Now, I think the tricky part comes when we try to argue that this is a deception. Is it really a deception? Was it calculated to convey to the world that there's a temporary occupation while the entire state was involved in making things apparently more and more permanent? I think that we went back and forth about that, but I think that ultimately it's probably going too far to say this was a completely calculated process from the start. I think probably going back to 1967, the Israeli government wasn't truly, hadn't truly decided what it wanted to do with the territories. But there's no question that since the beginning, there have always been forces in the Israeli political community and many elements of society that wanted to expand settlements and ultimately achieve Israeli sovereignty over the area. But that's that was the, the, the sort of status quo of that that relationship between the state and the army running the occupation for all these years and what changes what changed now you know why why is this actually a change it is a real change and first of all we do think that it will affect the lives of people on the ground it will make jewish israeli citizens lives easier <laughs> because they'll be living more directly under a civilian bureaucracy and it will make life for palestinians harder because they will continue to be 
well, to the extent that any of their affairs are governed by this new civil authority, this new uh, civilian minister, he is a very, very right wing ideological minister who would want to make life harder for them. But beyond that, it's also really making it clear to everybody the situation that in a deeper way may have existed up until now, but it's formalizing it. It's doing it openly and it's making it, you know, I mean, this is where you start having to acknowledge that we have a system in place that intends to perpetuate the inequality of the status of the people living under Israeli control. And we all know what that's called. And, you know, and, and I think that in many ways, that is that's the nub of the problem, right? Which is that even though the civilian law is being extended, all, all people who are affected by it don't have equal opportunity to vote for that law or to create that law, right? It's highly unequal in terms of access to recourse. Well, I mean, you basically have uh, two separate laws for different populations in the same territory. So, I mean, you have, you know, Palestinians living under military rule and military law, and to some extent Jordanian law. And or Ottoman law. Kind of, yeah. And then and then you have um uh uh Israelis that there's an extension of Israeli law that is placed on them on the settlements themselves as enclaves. It's called the law of enclaves. But I think what's important, uh, what's important to understand is also how, you know, Dalia mentioned the Supreme Court um, being involved from the very beginning. The Supreme Court was was um, one of the ways in which the separation between Israel and the occupied territories was maintained over time. So you could have um, two separate regimes in one. Um, because the Supreme Court was upholding these different kinds of laws um, in these different territories. And one of the changes that we're seeing now is as there's an attack on the judiciary and the concept of the rule of law, the way it, it was carried out in Israel until this point, it, it is actually rhyming with the fact that um, this government would like to do away with that separation between regimes, the one inside Israel and the one in the territories, and kind of create one single regime across the entire um, territory. You know, yeah, one of the things which uh, really struck me in uh, in your recent book on uh, colonial bureaucracies um, is your opening anecdote about how you would try to, as a lawyer at the time, you would try to defend Palestinians and you couldn't actually find a place for them within the law. Yeah, I think that for me, understanding that that the governance of Palestinians was happening through bureaucracy and administration was um, the kind of way into understanding that this was a colonial bureaucracy, which is exactly that. I mean, there is you, you can have there there is no sovereignty. There is no actual rule of law. What you have is power and then um, bureaucratic organization to sustain that power and put that into practice. And I think it's one of the things that is um, most characteristic of the occupation is that possibility to govern through appointments, through decrees, through regulation, um, actually without needing very much law. And, and um, I mean, formal law. And it's and it's and yet we have to constantly remember the role of the Supreme Court in kind of upholding this system. You know, we have it, and and it's this it's it's a Janus based um, story, right? You have this constant um, uh, limbo between saying, "Oh, this is not Israel. This is something else. International law applies. Laws of occupation apply." But on the other hand. <laughs> When it comes, that's when it comes to Palestinians. But when it comes to Jews, um, suddenly the law does apply, and they are part of this of, of the rule of law. And so, having this two tier system that is based on racial hierarchy is something that is it's hard to fathom. It's also hard to for people to accept, but it is something that has been in place since the very early days of occupation. Yeah, I want to just add. When we talk about colonial bureaucracies, this isn't a metaphor. We're not, this isn't just making a case. I mean, the actual regulations, the defense emergency regulations that were established by the British in 1945, 
are still in place to this day in the West Bank. I mean, we're, this is not like a, you know, somebody making a political statement. Those are the actual regulations still governing. I mean, one of the many systems of law still governing in addition to Jordanian law, and Ottoman law, that's been anything that the army decides um, in terms of governing Palestinians in the West Bank. Yeah, and that, and that is a really important point. And the, the patchwork of laws is, of course, then also, you know, really connected to, you know, the the, the crisis right now. Dahlia, we've been talking about this um, in various venues, uh, you know, for quite a while now about, you know, this the Israeli protest movement against the judicial reforms. And you've been one of the people who's keep trying to uh, to connect this to core questions about Israeli democracy and the nature of the occupation. A lot of people yeah, don't, I don't think that you... connection. <clears throat> Sorry. Sorry, hold on one second. I just have a quick drink. Yeah, I mean, I find it still, you know, one of these really strange situations where everybody else around the world who asks me to explain what's going on says, well, how do Israelis not understand the connection between occupation and democracy? That seems strange. And for Israelis, you know, you go to the protests every week and some Israelis go point point to the cluster of other Israelis who are there demonstrating for democracy and against the occupation. And the ones who aren't part of that, but who are demonstrating just against the judicial reforms say, what are they doing there? What's the connection with the occupation now? Why do we have to worry about this? So there's a complete disconnect between how other people might see this issue and how Israelis see the issue. For Israelis, these are completely separate issues. You know, I think for the mainstream Israelis, they see, uh, you know, simply the executive trying to take control of the country and concentrate all powers in the hands of Netanyahu. And Netanyahu is probably doing it because he's trying to protect himself from his corruption cases and get his, keep his cronies in office and stay in power. And he's willing to kind of sacrifice the independence of the Israeli judiciary to satisfy his coalition partners, etc. And where does the occupation even enter into the picture from their perspective? But from the other side, I mean, I think my perspective has been we are only in the situation where in which the judiciary is in such a precarious position in terms of its legitimacy because there have been challenges to the authority of the law and the institution of the judiciary itself going back, you know, not to the 1990s when Israel began the controversy over its what we call the judicial revolution, the, the judicial or the constitutional revolution. And not going back to 1967, but going back to 1948 and going back to before 1948, you've always had communities in Israel that challenge the authority uh, of the law in the civil state, in the secular state. But let's just try to focus it a little bit on the fact that when it comes to, uh, you know, normalizing undemocratic practices, Israel has been implementing military rule over people that it controls from the beginning of statehood to the present. Okay, from 1948, formally till 1966, Israel held between 15 and 20% of its population. Around that time, it was more like 15%. It's Palestinian Arab citizens under military rule. And that actually, in practice, continued through 1968. It's a technicality. Israel dismantled the military government, but continued to rule that population under these colonial regulations that we talked about until 1968. And then in any case, if it dismantled the military regime in December 1966, six months later began the occupation and began establishing the occupation military rule over Palestinians, Israel's democratic culture has always normalized completely undemocratic practices. And Israelis are used to that and they think it's normal and they don't really question it. They don't say this is a sacrifice we have to make for democracy. From their perspective, this is democracy. And I think the moment, you know, historically, on a collective level, you understand democracy as something that can include practices that are totally antithetical and that require, in a way, bending the laws of the country to support this kind of undemocratic practice, then you have challenges to what the rule of law is really for. And there are whole communities in Israel that think that the, that the entire state exists only to promote Jewish national sovereignty, Jewish privilege, Jewish governance, you know, anything that's exclusive. And if the Supreme Court or the Israeli judiciary gets in the way of that, they question, challenge, and ultimately reject its legitimacy. And the main arena where we see that dispute right now is in the occupied territories. Uh, there is an image that the court somehow restrains Israel's control and expansion and power over the West Bank. And again, it's effective control over Gaza, 
which is frankly wrong. And I think that Yale will probably be happy to talk about exactly why it, that is such a wrongful image. Uh, but that has become a very popular narrative for the right wing to say the Supreme Court is standing in the way of our Jewish national mission. And therefore, when it comes to you know a question over which is more important, the judiciary is on the losing end of that. And so I don't see, and so that makes it easy prey for Netanyahu now that it's in his interest and his coalition partners to say, let's, you know, kind of rile up the people against the judiciary. And they've been, to be honest, they've laid the groundwork for that for about 10 years. They've been, they've been kind of, you know, railing against the entire judiciary. But that is a core theme that the judiciary is constraining our political aims. Now, the funny thing is, the other side of that is that mm -hmm. at the beginning of the protest is actually something that kind of um, stopped. But at the very early um, stages of the protest, there was a campaign saying um, uh, the High Court of Justice is the um, armor of the military from The Hague, from the International Criminal Court. That was my Wasn't that my bug? No, and so, you know, it's funny because, like, you try and explain this thing. It was very easily understood in Israel. But explaining this outside of Israel was hard because here you have this, you know, the alleged democratic camp saying, oh, the Supreme Court is our protection from international law. Like, how does that work? But I think understanding um, more deeply the separation of having basically two regimes in one constantly. I mean, having two separate regimes, it's also a legal regime. So Dahlia mentioned uh, the military rule was actually 49 to um, 66. And then after uh, the occupation, but you constantly also have the emergency defense regulations. This whole body of law that we inherited from British colonial rule that is constantly in the background and it is a source of power for um, Israel's executive. Now, the funny thing is here is that there is a surplus of executive power in Israel. There is no lack of it. It's actually, I mean, if, if you look, so we have a, a fairly, we have a, an independent judiciary, but it's not at all as strong as the executive. And definitely, um, you know, <laughs> the government is much stronger than, than, the, um, than the legislative branch. And it, it, it's also because they have this arsenal of emergency laws um, that they can use. Um, and, this, and also it's completely legitimate to use it because of the occupation. And that's one of the, one of the um, it's, it's a tragedy in a way because the whole point of the judicial um, overhaul now is basically to fortify um, Jewish supremacy, to allow for annexation, to allow for um, the supremacy of religious law and also the dismantling of the remaining of uh, uh, social rights and social infrastructures that are in place. And this is very clear from the agendas of those who are driving the judicial overhaul, but let much less clear to the protest movement. And I think that um, it's one of the things that we're facing here is that the annexation de, uh, de jure is happening, is happening, it's happening. It already happened, it's happening. It's, you know, is it present tense or past tense? And, and, um, and the protests are, are still lagging behind that without understanding the, the, the connection between the two. But what worries me is that even if they understood the connection, I am not convinced that the vast majority of protesters would make that their issue. I mean, you know, it was only a very tiny portion of the protesters who would define themselves as left wing. In other words, the protest movement has been very proud of the fact that it includes moderate right wingers, centrists, you know, moderate left wingers who are not on the further part of the left which has really made occupation their central issue. And even if they did know that while all this is going on, while the judicial overhaul is being battled out, you know, in the media and the Knesset and all this stuff, if they knew 
exactly how much Israel was digging in its civil, you know, or expanding and spreading its civil bureaucracy over controlling the West Bank and essentially annexing it. Would they mind? So I do think that there's a consensus against Israeli sovereignty in the territories. And there is a consensus against one single state from the river to the sea in that sense. So it's a very strange um, kind of political configuration in which we know that the conditions for a two-state solution are, you know, all but gone. But there is no consensus on declaring sovereignty and annexation. So we're in this in-between moment where I actually think that political forces and analysis and um, campaigns can really make a change. It's a very good point because, you know, in my pollster hat, I can tell you that I wouldn't go so far as to say there's a consensus against those things. We don't see that. But we do see that there is no consensus on, for example, annexation. In, in 2020, when the prime minister was every day talking about beginning the annexation process and it became real, we never actually had a majority of the Jewish population in surveys, in different surveys, that openly supported, you know, a more expansive annexation plan, even of the Jewish population. And when it comes to asking about one state, we ask about one state all the time. In survey research, we ask about one democratic state and we ask about one undemocratic state in which Israel controls everything and the Palestinians have limited rights. and you have, uh, unfortunately, a rising number of Israeli Jews who are prepared to accept the undemocratic one state, but it's still about 37% in my last survey among Israeli Jews. And of course, Arab citizens, Palestinians in Israel have much lower support, so that brings the average down. So you're right that there's not really support. If you say it like that, if you say this is one undemocratic state with limited rights for Palestinians, it's true. The majority of Israelis are against it. But I don't think they're making the connection that that is actually what's already happening right now on the ground through these processes. Well, this has been a really fascinating discussion. Um, and I think that it's an important intervention into this ongoing uh, rethinking of what's happening um, with Israel. Uh, I want to thank uh, Yael Berda and Dalia Scheinlin for joining our podcast. <laughs>